Well, our, we're continuing our study in Second Timothy chapter one. Our passages nine through twelve. I read this uh, on the newspaper a few months ago. It happened in England. A wife and mom of two, two boys. She's been married for twelve years. She was pregnant with her third child. On her fifth month of pregnancy, the doctors discovered the source of her abdominal pain. She had um, cancer of her liver, and it was spreading. They needed, uh, Im- she needed immediate treatment, chemotherapy, to stop the spread of this cancer. Her life was at risk. One of the main side effects of this chemotherapy would be the loss of her child in a room. All her friends said, you are young, you can have more children, abort this child, you are more important than this child. She refused, and she delayed her treatment, and um, four months later, she had a little baby girl. And a sweet picture of her, I have it saved on my computer file of her laying in bed. And so she didn't leave the hospital. She gave birth, and then she immediately started chemotherapy. And a picture of them lying together and with mom's hair falling out, lying together with a big smile, holding her, uh, her daughter. They asked her what compelled her to risk her life, to delay her treatment. And she said, even though the child was not born... I love this child more than my life. And uh, we are stirred by uh, uh, that love, uh, a mom's love for a child, even an unborn child. She has this deep bond, and she sacrifices, she suffers, she risks death for this child. We read these accounts as Christians, and our response is, oh, how we want to love Christ in the same way. How we desire to have such deep, passionate, abiding love for Christ. So much so that we don't think twice. We willingly, joyfully, voluntarily, repeatedly sacrifice ourselves. Suffer for Christ because we so love Him. We love Him so much. Now, if we were, when I was in college, you know, when I got saved in college, I'd, I would say with confidence, that is my love for Christ. But as I get older and older, I realize really nothing lasts but the grace of God. So for you this morning, if you are young Christians, you have this zeal for Christ, we praise God for you. Keep fanning that into flame. Don't think twice. Don't look back. Keep charging ahead. But for those of you who've been believers for a while, and have experienced your share of failures, your share of sins, and you've experienced firsthand how often your heart is more cold than hot for Christ. And you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Peter knows what you're talking about because he confessed that he loved Christ so much he would die for Christ. He would never deny Him. Well, we know... Within a few short hours, Peter denied the Lord three times. Apparently, Peter was wrong. Peter was in error. 
he overestimated grossly his love for Christ, and he grossly underestimated his own pride, his own sin in his flesh, his own selfishness. So it is amazing to us to read Second Timothy. Because here is a man who has joyfully, willfully, voluntarily, repeatedly entered the fray. He is, he has sacrificed for Christ. And he is suffering for Christ. Spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and physically, he has not turned back. He has not cowered to his worst fears. He did not give himself over to his anxieties. He responded to the love of God by sacrificing himself and risking his life for the cause of Christ. Not only that, he's doing something incredible here, something quite amazing. He calls his dear beloved son in the faith, Timothy, to suffer with him for the gospel, to join him in suffering for the gospel of Christ. We find here that Paul loved Christ more than Timothy. It is in our own weakness, it is our own sinfulness that we try to protect our loved ones from suffering for Christ. So if Paul had loved Timothy more than Christ, he would say, Timothy, take it easy. Don't be too radical. Don't be too firm in your stance on the gospel and the doctrines of Christ. Be sensitive to your culture. Be seeker-sensitive. Be pragmatic. And take care of yourself, lest you suffer. But Paul clearly loved Christ more because he calls Timothy, this young man whom he loved, to suffer for Christ, to join him in suffering for the gospel. It is tremendous leadership. It is the kind of leadership that we desperately need in the church today. Leadership where you model suffering. And because you love Christ more than people, you call others to suffer with you for the sake of the gospel. Paul is demonstrating it to Timothy and demonstrating it to us. And our question this morning is, how is this possible? This is incredible. This is almost unbelievable. It's almost inhuman. It's almost um, unthinkable how a man could live like this, think this way, so joyfully sacrifice and suffer for Christ. In verses 9 through 12, Paul tells us his secret. Paul tells us the motivation behind his suffering. It is not Paul's love for Christ. There is nothing about that here. There is no mention of Paul's love, Paul's godliness, Paul's righteousness, Paul's courage or integrity. Nothing of the sort. What he mentions is God's love for Paul. God's love for Paul. The gospel. God's sovereign grace given to Paul as the fuel for him to suffer for Christ. And he shares that with Timothy so that he might also suffer for Christ. 
And that is why this study is so important for each of us. Because for us, you know, suffering in Christ is not an option. Life is suffering. All of us will suffer. Right? If someone told you, you know, you can avoid suffering in life, you know, they're, they're, they lied to you and they're selling you something. Right? We will all suffer. That's, there's no choice in that matter. But suffering for Christ, we mentioned weeks ago, it is an option. We can choose, we can make decisions in our lives to not suffer for Christ. And it's heightened in our context here, living in the United States, where Christianity is looked favorably, living here in Orange County, living here in California. I heard that California uses more gasoline than China, right? All of China, this state, right, uses more gasoline than all of China. This state is the fourth largest economy in the whole world, right? And we're in the most prosperous part of that state, in Orange County. And so we can easily live out our Christian lives, have this outward facade of commitment to Christ, and yet all the while we make these small decisions and mill-sized decisions, large decisions to avoid suffering in Christ. And through our whole lives, we've just been in the stands watching as Christians into the fight, bravely sacrifice and suffer and risk their lives for Christ. So this sermon is for us. This study is for us. If we are counting on our love for Christ to motivate us to get in the fight and stay in the fight, well, I hope through Scripture and through your own personal experience, you have found by now that our love for Christ is not strong enough. Our love for Christ is too fickle. It's too weak. It's too small. I mean, suffering is so difficult, so arduous, it's so painful that um, it's really no match, right? We, we, we run a first opportunity if we're counting on our love for Christ. Paul told Timothy, and God's telling us, that what should cause us to suffer for Christ's gospel, what will keep us in that fight is God's love for us. It's the gospel of sovereign grace. Gospel of free grace. Look at verses 9 through 12. We have a mini doctrine of salvation here that is utterly comprehensive. It is found in the midst of Paul's five commands in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. That's, the, that's, the, that's our broad outline. We studied our first three commands. Do not be ashamed of the gospel, first commandment. Do not be ashamed of Paul's second command. Third command was share in suffering for the gospel. Do not be ashamed, do not be ashamed, do not share in suffering. And then verse 13 is the fourth command. Follow the pattern of sound teaching. Verse 14 is the fifth command, guard the good deposit. Sandwiched in the midst of these commands, Paul launches into the gospel. And it's all about what God has done and will do. Nothing about what Paul 
has done, what Timothy should do. Look at these verbs, who saved us, called us, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. Verse 10, manifested through the appearing of our Savior, abolished death. Verse 11, which I was appointed, all past tense, all unilaterally what God did. And then verse 12 is only future. He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This is um, incredible. This is breathtaking. Paul is calling us to take a step back. We are looking at our suffering in this way. And we need a broader perspective. We need to take ten steps back. Look at the broad scope of the gospel gospel is not just Jesus died for me. Right? That's a simplistic gospel that is, that is inconsistent with the council, whole counsel of God. The gospel is so much more beautiful than just Jesus died for me. God's redemptive plan is so much grander, more majestic, more beautiful than that. Paul here unfurls the whole gospel and displays the grandeur of it. Here is the power of God glorifying theology, power of sound doctrine. This is our motivation. This is the power that enables us to overcome our fears, fears of suffering and shame. We are to drown ourselves this truth. Last part of verse 8. This is how Paul launches into the gospel. I suffer by the power of God. And as soon as he says God, he just takes off. He launches into what God has done. Telling us that this is God's gospel. That the gospel is about God. He is first and the last of the gospel. The gospel that we find in the Bible is not centered on you, centered on me. The gospel we find in the scriptures is concerned with God. It is wholly fixed on God. It seeks to glorify Him and Him alone. This gospel causes men to fear God, to love God, to glorify God. This is the gospel that Paul preached. And so, this is what will cause us to endure in suffering. We'll go through one by one ten truths of the gospel, ten realities of the gospel that motivates us to suffer for Christ. For Paul, that was the logical conclusion of the gospel. The gospel, we hear the gospel is not, oh, warm and fuzzy. We hear the gospel and, oh, it makes us feel good and, you know, it just encourages us and makes us happy. That's not the fruit of the gospel. For Paul, the fruit is, see the gospel and you suffer. You understand the gospel, 
you suffer. You're committed to the gospel. You believe in the gospel. The rightful response is to cherish it by our lives, by suffering, sacrificing, risking for the gospel of Christ. So 10, will not finish today, likely finish next or in two weeks. The first truth, first reality is that God in His absolute sovereignty has saved us. God in His absolute sovereignty has saved us. Verse 9, God who saved us. This sovereign, almighty, creator God, what has He done? He saved us. God did it. We did not save ourselves, nor is our salvation still pending. It's not up to debate. It's not uncertain. Absolute certainty that those who are in Christ Jesus are saved. That was the prophecy made about Christ before He was born. Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son. You shall call Him Jesus, and He will save His people from their sins. And God did it. God saved us. What were we saved from? The Bible tells us the first and foremost we're saved from God's holy wrath, from God's anger. We are saved from God's wrath. God's holy revulsion to our disgusting sins. His unbridled anger. His out-of-control wrath poured out on sin. We've been saved from that. Romans 5.9 Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? 1 Thessalonians 1.10 We wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus. Who is this Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. God in Christ saved us from His own wrath. This settled opposition poured out to evil. This wrath, a function of the perfect justice of God, aroused and provoked only by our sins. God has saved us from that. We know in our hearts we deserve God's wrath. All men, in their conscience, God has decreed moral right and moral wrong. And when they sin, they're going against their conscience. They know they're storing up for themselves the wrath of God. They know the ordinances of God. And they know that they're storing up wrath. Romans 2.5 Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Everyone in the whole world is uh, making investments in their spiritual retirement account, faithfully investing, and one day they will incur God's wrath. The only way for God's wrath to be averted 
is by sacrifice, by atonement. But the blood of animals, sheep and goats, only averted God's wrath temporally, not eternally. God and God alone provides the way for God's wrath to be appeased and for our sins to be atoned for. That is why Paul, that's why John the Baptist said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. Paul called Christ our Passover Lamb. He has been sacrificed. God saved us through His Son. Jesus Christ is the gift of God who shed blood propitiates His own wrath. Isn't that amazing? God was about to pour His wrath on us. But because of His mercy, He gave His only Son that He might die to please His own wrath, cover up our sins, so that you and I, we might be saved. That is the ultimate issue awaiting all of us. Either Christ pays for our sins or we pay for our sins. Either He dies or we die. He is the sinner's only hope. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So our minds must be clear. If we're considering suffering as an option, we want to live comfortable Christian lives. We want to, in every way possible, avoid risking anything for the cause of Christ. Our first thought to counter that is, God saved me. God saved me. From his own wrath, poured out on evil, by the death of his only son. This is what has been done on my behalf. Before we think about the suffering, think about the shame, focus our minds on this first truth of the gospel, that we have been saved, delivered, ransomed, rescued, our sins atoned for by God. That's the first truth. Second truth is that God in His absolute sovereignty efficaciously called us. Efficaciously called us. Second part of verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Called us to a holy calling. Now there is definitely a worldwide general call of the gospel which is sincere and genuine. We are to go out into the highways and byways and preach the gospel. Call people to repentance. Call people to trust in Christ. But that is not what Paul is talking about here. In the scriptures, when this term is used in light of our salvation, 
It is a fixed meaning. It is talking about the efficacious internal call by the Holy Spirit. Not the external call, but the external call of the Holy Spirit, which we are not aware of, which we cannot control. We cannot package this call and make it happen. It's the sovereign work of God. And when He calls, they come. Romans 1.6 You who are called, you belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome, verse 7, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Romans 8, 28 through 29. We know that for those who love God, all things work for the good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Verse 30, those whom He predestined, those that He elected, He called. Those He called, all of them He justified. And those He justified will be glorified. He doesn't lose any of them. Everyone He elects, He called. All those He called, every single one He called, they are justified. And everyone that is justified will be glorified in heaven forever. An English term that might help us better understand this, this, word, this theological understanding is summons. When the court summons you, it's an order, it's a command. You are bound to obey. But even that doesn't fully explain this theological term because we can resist the courts. We can run away, we can hide, we can ignore the call summoned, summons given to us by the court. They might send the police, right, after us, but we can resist. But not the summons of God. It's wholly otherwise with God's summons. Dr. John Murray said, There is something determinate about God's call. By His sovereign power and grace, it cannot fail. I think Paul added this here um, because of the qualifying phrase. Called us to a holy calling. God the Father saved us and it wasn't just positional spiritual salvation. God in Christ called us and He called us to a holy calling. He called us to righteousness. He called us to holiness, to sanctification, to bear fruit according to His name. So just like when He calls a man, He saves that man. When He calls a man, He calls him to holiness. And all believers experience that new spirit, new, new nature, that new affection, new desire given to us by the, by the call of God. This holiness is not the cause of our salvation, but the effect. It is the result of His purpose. He called us not because we were holy. He called us even though we were unholy. And He called us to holiness. So everyone in Christ has this marked change in direction because of this efficacious call. 
So, again, every time we are lured by, lured to complacency by this world, by our family and friends, by our culture, our co-workers, we are lulled into just coasting through life, avoiding suffering, being friends with the world, and not risking and living for Christ. Our first thought is He saved us. Second thought is, He called me. He summoned me. He commanded my heart. I'm His prisoner. My, My heart is chained to Christ, and I never want to break this chain. I'm a willing prisoner, and I'm called to holiness. I don't have a choice in this matter. This efficacious call has bound my heart. And so if I live according to the world, I will be utterly miserable. I cannot go back and live the way I did. Because if I were to, the call of God has changed me. Before I could live in the world and live, you know, just watching movies, listening to music, having fun with my friends, carefree existence, right? I was just, I was happy. No longer. He called me, my heart has changed. And perhaps you've experienced this yourselves. You go back into the world and you're doing the same things that you used to do but you've lost a taste for it. There is no joy. There's no peace. There's no pleasure. There's only misery. Because God has called you. So we realize that through scripture and through experience, God has called us to holiness. The third reality of the gospel that we are called to mind is that God in His absolute sovereignty saved us not by our works, but by grace alone. Verse 9. I mean, it can't be more clear, can it? As I go on, I don't understand what the debate is. It is so patently clear. It's like third grade English, right? Philosophy 101, logic. You know, Paul doesn't um, stutter in verse 9. He saved us and called us not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. Unmerited salvation. The scripture, the teaching of scripture is clear and unequivocal. That man is totally depraved. That the corruption of sin and evil extend to all of man's faculties. That we are corrupted in every way, in every extremity, in every faculty, corrupted by sin. Isaiah 1, 4 and 6. All sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. You have forsaken the Lord. You have despised the Holy One of Israel. From the sole of the foot 
Even to the head, there is no soundness in it. All of man is tainted by sin. Our hearts, which in Scripture denotes the very center of man's being, the seed of our affections, the seed of our personality. Christ said in Mark 7, 21-23, From out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from the heart. There is no one whose heart is pure. All of us share spiritual corruption of the heart. Not only our hearts, but our minds. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Our minds are futile. We are darkened in our understanding. We are alienated from the life of God. Not only our hearts, not only our minds, but our souls are corrupt. Our will is corrupt. John 5.40 Christ was telling them, even though you know the truth, you have seen all these miracles, you refuse to come to me. You refuse to come to me. That was the state that we were in. We were helpless, hopeless, dead in sin. Our hearts were creating all this evil. Our minds were futile. We were fools, darkened in our understanding. Our will was corrupt. We refused to go to God. We were obstinate, rebellious. So salvation by ourselves, by works, was impossible. Impossible. Job 15, 14, what is man that he can be pure? Or who, or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? The first book of the Bible ever written, Job cried out in Job 25, 4 through 6, how can man be right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright. The stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot, son of a man who is a worm. That was the state of our hearts. When we're toying with the idea of being a friend with the world, idea of living complacent Christian lives, we remember our corruptness. How we were not saved by our works. We were dead in trespass. It was an impossibility. We were in an impossible, hopeless situation. And the standard that God called us to to be saved was perfection. It was not just obeying a few laws or following a few rituals enabled us to be saved. The standard by which given to us, by which we enter into heaven was just as your heavenly Father is perfect, you are to be perfect. Matthew 5.48 It was in this dreadful state. What did God do? He gave us the one thing we needed. One thing that we didn't deserve. He gave us grace. In His absolute sovereignty, He gave us undeserved merit. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no man can boast. Titus 3.5 He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Because we had none. Because we couldn't. We were, it was impossible. The standard was too high. But He didn't save us because of that. But He saved us according to His own mercy. By His own mercy. Here, the first part is a strong negation of any contribution on our part for our salvation. In the second part, here is an equally strong affirmation that our salvation is solely based on God's mercy. He undeservedly saved us. This doctrine is beautiful because it puts us in our place. It, it opens our eyes. It, it uh, helps us from our deception, from our blindness. Because we still think we're righteous. We have uh, Arminian theology, remnants of it, all over in our hearts, in our souls, and in our minds. We think highly of ourselves. We boast privately, post, and my private post publicly. We boast of ourselves. And we undermine God's grace in doing that. This puts us in our place. It makes a man look down upon himself. Charles Allen Spurgeon wrote this, I am nothing. There is nothing in me to merit esteem. I have no goodness of my own. As a Christian, I cannot praise myself. I cannot in any way ascribe to myself honor. God has done it. God has done it. He continues, Nothing makes the man so humble, but nothing makes him so glad. Nothing lays him so low at the mercy seat, but nothing makes him so brave to look his fellow man in the face and say, God save me by grace. So this is the third truth. Dear sister at our church said to me recently, Pastor James, for the first time in my life, God's grace is amazing to me. Christian for many years, and to be honest, God's grace was never amazing. God's grace is okay, you know, it's good. But I always believed I contributed to my salvation. That God was responding to my righteousness, to my faith, to my goodness. So because of my participation, my view that I was participating in my salvation, I never particularly saw how God's grace was that amazing. But now learning these grand truths, these doctrines of grace, knowing now the depths of my own depravity, my own sinfulness, my own helplessness, my hopelessness, apart from Christ, more and more, God's grace is amazing to me. Free grace of God given to me in Christ in view of my many countless awful and even sins is amazing. Is it amazing to you? 
Are you continually amazed that God would grant you mercy and grace in view of your many sins, your countless evil deeds? In closing, let's review the three and consider its applications to us. The first truth is that according to His sovereign grace, God saved us. God did it all. The triune Jehovah, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons worked together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of a chosen people. The Father elected, the Son fulfilled, the Holy Spirit executed the Father's purpose, and the Son manifested through the Gospel and saved us. He did everything, first to last, bringing man from death and sin to life and glory, achieving that, accomplishing that on the cross, communicating that redemption, sanctifying us, glorifying us, God saved us, us who are sinners. Though we are guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, unable to lift a finger, God saved us. This is the reality. So what should be the result? Are we going to embrace the gospel and yet turn away and not suffer for it? Not show our allegiance. Not respond, respond in like manner. In view of God's mercy given to us in the gospel, are we going to just take it and soak it in? Or are we going to respond in suffering? Secondly, God in His absolute sovereignty efficaciously called us This tells us we need to be faithful in the outward proclamation of the gospel, fully knowing we can't control the inward call. We can't package or control or or make people be saved. We can't manipulate people and, and cause them to be saved. Our singular responsibility is to suffer for the gospel and proclaim it so generously, freely, to all, indiscriminately, Preach the gospel, knowing that through the gospel, God will call His people to Himself. And this internal call cannot be resisted. It's irresistible. It is efficacious. It will accomplish its intended results. God will not fail. No man can resist the internal call of God. So we preach by faith. We preach with conviction. We proclaim with generosity. Knowing that it's not, the result is not determined by our eloquence. It's not determined by our preparation. Like we are really just jars of clay, clay pots. God in His sovereignty is doing it all. We are just simple means that He employs to accomplish His own purpose and grace. So knowing that, it frees us to just preach the gospel near and far. Finally, God in His absolute sovereignty 
saved us not by our works, but by grace alone. Please don't think you've heard this over so many times. You know that you're saved by grace, so you don't. This is a simple doctrine, elementary. I already know this. Do you really? Knowing how you respond to your own sins, knowing your prayer life, knowing your love for God, knowing your obedience, knowing how. You suffer or avoid suffering. Knowing how you relate to the lost, do you really understand this doctrine of unmerited favor given to us in God according to God's sovereignty? May this truth be embedded in our hearts. May it be written on our hearts, branded on our hearts, engraved on our hearts that we would always understand that we're saved by grace. And no matter what we do, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. So that this might prompt us to suffer for Christ. That's the appropriate response to the gospel. How How we suffer is different for each of us. How we suffer is different. That's what um Peter faced in John 21, right? Christ told Peter, when you were young, you dressed yourself. When you were older, someone else will dress you, indicating the manner in which Peter would die. So Peter will suffer by being crucified upside down for for Christ. Peter's response is, well, what's going to happen to John? And Christ said, what's that to you? You follow me. John will suffer, but he will suffer in a different way. You will suffer in this way. For all of us, it's the gospel. We suffer for it, but how we suffer is unique to us. Will God's gospel prompt us? For some of you, your suffering is standing for the gospel within your own family, your own husband and wife. The standards for loving Christ more than your children. Loving your children's soul more than Christ. For some of you, it's risking relationships. Relatives, co-workers, this world. For some of you, it's by standing for Christ among your neighbors, making yourself uncomfortable, being in a foreign environment, eating strange foods, getting involved in weird customs, all for the gospel of Christ. For me, one of the ways I uniquely suffer for the gospel, by God's grace, I endeavor to preach the gospel at weddings. I know what people want. I know what families want. I know what... They want a nice, short sermon. They want a flowery, nice message that will make everyone happy and feel good. But if I do that, I'm not suffering for the gospel. I endeavor to preach the gospel, and I know, man, people don't like it. Some people are offended. Some people hate me for it. 
Some of you have told me, yeah, my mom hates you, right? <laughs> Some of your moms, you told me that. My mom is so offended. Yeah, my guess, right? But for me, that is, you know, that's one way for me to start for the gospel, right? Not be, but for you, it's unique, individual as well. As you are living in this world, living in this comfortable, affluent corner of the world, may these truths abide in you and abide in me to stand for Christ and suffer for him. Father, we, our hearts are humbled to discover again that Paul wrote these words from a prison cell, in a dungeon, chained to the wall, treated like a criminal. And he tells us that he's there not because he's such a great Christian, he loves you so much. He tells us he's there because you loved him so much. Because you saved him. Because you called him. And because you saved him, not because of his works. No, even though he was completely corrupt, you saved him by your grace. And so with joy set before him, he was suffering. And now he calls calls us and you are calling us. Oh God, we pray. The gospel will be understood and apprehended in every way by your people here at Cornerstone. That we would understand the depth, the width, the height of your love that is contained in the gospel. That we would be forever amazed that you'll look upon us and you look out with eyes of condemnation, eyes of hatred and anger. But through your Son, you saw us with eyes of compassion, love, and mercy. And according to your own mercy and grace, you saved us. You delivered us from your own wrath. Or may that be uh, inscribed on our hearts. May that be on the forefront of our minds daily. So that your gospel would be what fuels our worship of you fuels our discipleship, fuels us in following, sacrificing, and suffering of the gospel for you. Lord, um, help us Lord, not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.